0: You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of all the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give you all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, you will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. Well, there was an invention
1: I didn't know about when I was in college, but it sounds like I could have used it. There was an, there was an alarm clock. It's still sold. You can get them on Amazon. It's called Clocky called Clocky, and I think I've told a Bible study or maybe some of you about this. Um, Clocky, I wanna know if anybody has it too. Tell me afterwards if you do. The idea behind Clocky is it's an alarm clock, but the makers of Clocky realize that we are too weak sometimes when our alarm goes off to actually get out of bed. And so you are allowed to snooze it one time, and then after that, you'll notice Clocky is on wheels. Clocky is battery-operated, and you snooze Clocky, and then Clocky takes off, off your dresser, whatever, across the room. And so you're forced to get up out of bed and run after Clocky and pick Clocky up. And then I think you can't hit snooze. You have to find, like, a little button to turn off. So the idea behind it is they've made it, and you buy it basically going, I am so weak— that I wake up, and in my mind, I know I should get up, but the temptation to just hang out in bed pulls me back there. My spiritual gift is figuring out reasons why not to get up when the alarm goes off. I got really, really good at that all throughout college. I figured out ways. Well, it takes me 20 minutes, but if I sprinted, I could get there in like 12, and I'll just snooze. I probably could have used clocky. There's times like that where we're tempted to do something even though we know in our mind this doesn't make sense, shouldn't, but the temptation can be such a strong pull on us. Now, think about this. If you hit snooze a few times and if you, you know, start getting up late, what's really the consequence? It might be no big deal. It might just be, I'm just kind of frantically, I'm just going a little more frantic because I lost nine minutes of prep time, whatever that means. Could be um, uh, you know if you're going to work or something, maybe you get there, you're running late. And then people start branding you as the person that's late. And well, they seem to not care if about the time anybody else spends. And you start to get a label put on you. So it could start to be a big deal. You could be late for class and your grades could fail. So a little thing could end up getting to be a big thing. But when we talk about temptation, there's maybe some little degrees and then some broader degrees of it as well. Some things that can really get us and really be detrimental and things that maybe aren't as big a deal. Procrastination, wasting time, when we think about temptation, we immediately go to sexual temptation and that's a very real one that we need, to, we need to be aware of but at the same time, that's not all that there is. What about gluttony? What about um, anybody have the temptation to prove that you are always right? I know that one very well. I've had instances where I've said, well, Nikki, I think we're getting together with them on Thursday. She says, no, 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 it's Friday. And I'm like, okay, I thought it was Thursday. You know, it's Friday. And then on Thursday, they go, hey, are y'all coming? And I go, aha. And my point is to go, I told you it was Thursday. Instead of going, whoops, let's get out the door and get going. I want very clearly to go, just let's acknowledge for a minute, I was right and you were wrong. And I wrote down the four times I mentioned Thursday, just in case you forgot. Like that can be a temptation that can rear up to go, I need to be proven right. What about anger? How does your anger come out? What about perfectionism? Temptation to pull towards perfectionism. Pull towards anxiety. Temptation to just respond to everything with worry and anxiety. Or what about our our lovely phones? Have our phones given us any more things that could tempt us? They're designed to addict us. They can tempt us into the, um, the comparison game on social media. They can tempt us into, we could be hanging out with our loved ones, having meaningful conversations, and instead we're going, I'm sorry, honey, I know you're crying, but I'm checking my work email. It just dinged me. I just got a text from somebody. And that the ding is, I wanna check that. Like the temptation pulls us pretty strongly. What about finding our self-worth through means that we shouldn't? Temptation. This took me about four seconds to write that list because temptation, it just pummels us constantly. And sometimes the effects can be really, really devastating. And the nice thing about this is we are not the first people that have ever had to deal with temptation. And in fact, we get to watch Jesus himself deal with being tempted by the master tempter, Satan himself. I'm gonna be in Luke chapter four for a little bit and we're gonna see two things. We're gonna see what did Jesus do when Satan tempted him? You heard Steve read it. What did Jesus do when Satan tempted him that we ought to do? And then there's something else that Jesus did that we should not do. And I'll show you that as well. So let me set the stage for this and then we'll be in Luke chapter four. The, the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, have this progression chronologically where it says um, Jesus was baptized and then he was tempted and then he starts his ministry. So this is the, um, the confirmation of God. This, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Um, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. This is the confirmation. Then right after that, he's tempted by Satan. And you heard it read, so I'm not spoiling anything. He passes all the tests. So he's giving evidence now of what God has declared about him to be true, that he is the son of God that passed the test of Satan. And then he is now qualified, ready, able to go and, uh, and have his ministry his earthly ministry. So Matthew's gospel has that. It starts with the baptism. Uh, It goes into the temptation. It's to a Jewish audience. So there's some other details throughout the temptation that a Jewish audience would have cared about. And then Jesus goes and starts his earthly ministry. Mark's gospel, written to the Romans, they're people of action. If you want to read an action packed gospel, man, go read Mark. It's just all about everything Jesus did. It's in the first chapter. He kind of goes, he was baptized. There's two verses about uh, he was tempted in the wilderness, and then he, here's what he did. And Mark just like jumps into what Jesus did. And then Luke's gospel does a similar thing where it has the baptism of Jesus, which you might not remember because it's been several weeks now because we took that break during July. And, and the other thing Luke inserted, if you remember last week how riveted you were when I read the genealogy of Jesus, that's in there as well, only in Luke's gospel. And chronologically, it sort of doesn't make sense. Why does everybody else just go, baptism, temptation, start the ministry, and Luke goes, baptism, here's his, you know, his genealogy, temptation, and then he starts his ministry. I'll show you why that's important here in just a second. But you have the baptism of Jesus, and you have the Holy Spirit descending on him, um, or descending like a dove, and then it says in Luke 4, right after that, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan, that's where he's baptized, and was led by the Spirit. So the Spirit was there at the baptism and then the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And it says for 40 days being tempted by the devil. We're not sure exactly where this wilderness is. It's the Judean wilderness somewhere. And so probably a little east-ish of Jerusalem. Um, it's less important the exact location. And more important is when he says wilderness, what does he mean? Wilderness is just picture no food no water, just picture the most barren place you can picture. And especially in the Greek mindset, um, this idea of wilderness was associated with demonic activity. It was, or it was associated with, uh, with the underworld, so to speak. It is a God-forsaken area. That's what he's trying to communicate. That's where Jesus is. And now also, if you were to ask me, Jim, go back to your vacation Bible school days and tell us about the temptation of Jesus, I would have said... I think he was baptized and then he went out in the wilderness and he was there by himself for 40 days, he was fasting, he was hungry and then Satan showed up and he threw three temptations at him. That's wrong, that's not what the text says. It's worse than that. It says he was there for 40 days, it says being tempted by the devil. you see where Jesus is, he's out in the wilderness, out in this barren God-forsaken land and he is he is out there and Satan has just been peppering him for 40 days. And then we get the three sort of cherries on top, if you will, of the temptation Sunday. That's a bad illustration, you know what I mean. He's been getting it for 40 days and then here's the three that he's gonna hit him with. Temptation number one, it says, and he ate nothing during those days. Matthew's gospel gives us the reason that he was fasting. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Of course he was. So the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, this is from Deuteronomy chapter eight, man shall not live by bread alone. What is Satan trying to get him to do? It appears that um, he is saying, your heavenly father is supposed to take care of you, but look, you're hungry, you're miserable, you're out in the wilderness, you shouldn't trust him, you should take matters into your own hands. After all, you're hungry, so what does he do? He hits him in the area it hurts and says, make food. But really what he's saying is don't trust the provision and protection and care of God the Father over you. Satan was a pretty good student of Jesus at this moment. Did you notice it did say he was hungry? It said he hadn't eaten for 40 days and he was hungry. And you go, well, of course he's hungry. Did you need to give us that detail? Yes, because what he's doing right after that is going, look at how he hit him. He hit him in the spot where he was going to be most vulnerable. He is a student of Jesus and trying to figure out how to tempt him. Really bad thing about this is Jesus and Satan are both students of you and students of me. Jesus loves us. Satan hates us. Satan is studying us and trying to figure out what temptation can I throw at that man or that woman or that boy or that girl that will get them. It may not get anybody else, but as long as it gets them, we'll do this one at a time. The big thing we need to know is how would Satan get you? to find Maybe a temptation to find your identity in blank, fill in the blank. My self-worth comes from my kid's success. Maybe it's there's a new young lady at work and she's really attractive and that's a temptation for me. Maybe it's um, a, a, a temptation towards finding your security in your finances and you're the one that goes and is constantly checking the market and hitting refresh to see how things are going. If it goes up, and if it goes down, ah. Oh, there's a secure the temptation there is towards your security. What about people pleasing? I'd ask you to raise your hands if you're a people pleaser, but I'm guessing you would. And so I don't want to make you do that. People pleasing. I've actually heard that one quite a bit lately, of people saying, I'm such a people pleaser, such a people pleaser. That can, that can be kind of a nice thing. You can do things nice for people. But also, that can pull you into all sorts of different sin. I think one of the biggest temptations that people have today is... Um, just in the culture at large is to really vocally be for or against something without offering any real solutions as to what to do. Just in my self-righteousness, I want to declare where I stand on this and be mad that it's like this, and I'm not really gonna do anything about it. Instead of actually roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, and actually fix something and make a difference. That can be a temptation. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna ask this. If Satan, who is a student of you, wanted to tempt you, how would he do it? If Satan, who is a student of you, wanted to tempt you, how would he do it? Pause and answer this, not out loud. Sorry, don't answer it out loud. Pause for just a moment and actually think of an answer to that. As you're thinking, let me offer two quick thoughts. We can feel defeated just by being tempted. And actually, if you think about it, two things we know about Jesus. One, he was without sin, and two, he was tempted. Meaning, being tempted by something is not inherently meaning you're in sin. It's what you do with the temptation. This helps when you go confess to somebody, I'm feeling tempted by this. Yeah, I haven't messed up. It's just a way that you might get gotten And So you're going and you're sitting down and sharing with somebody, not listen to all my mistakes. You're going, this is a way that I think somebody could get me. And you can get a good, faithful friend to put hands on you, to pray over you. But um, you, can, you can start to almost take the power, it sounds a little mystical, sorry, take the power out of the temptation when you really name it. Oh, I know how the enemy is gonna try and get me. Think of it like this. Um, temptation will only come in packages that are very tempting very attractive to the receiver of that. Some package might come to me that I might go, oh man, I really wanna give into that. And you're looking and going, seriously? And I go, yeah, 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 sorry, that's, that's me. And then you get a package of temptation. It looks like something else. And I go, why are you even why are you within 100 feet of that thing? Oh, that me. not Satan's very specific about how he wants to go at us. So the first thing we need to do is understand, how would he get us? And then look at what Jesus does with the second and third temptation. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I I will. Now, there's a little debate about what, uh, is this really, is this Satan saying, like, it's not really even his authority to give or no, he's the, is he the prince of the world? And so it is. And, and regardless of that, I think the problem is in the next statement where uh, just a pro tip, if Satan ever says, worship me, that's the problem. Here's what he says. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. I will give you so much for just a tiny little bit of disobedience, Jesus. That's what he's saying to him. And what does Jesus say? It is written, you shall, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Deuteronomy chapter six. Such a big benefit for such a tiny, tiny Compromise. The way he says it actually is Satan doesn't say, um, it it doesn't mean like become now a worshiper of me, Jesus. It's like, take a knee and worship me and then you can get back up and be on your way. Like it's a quick thing, one quick thing and then move on your way. And Jesus says, no, worship God and worship him alone. Such a big benefit for such a small little compromise. But then Satan does something brilliant next. I don't know if you caught it. He's gonna basically say, oh, I know what I can do. You're doing all this. It is written stuff. I can play that game too. And I'm gonna quote a Bible verse to you now that is wildly out of context. Listen to this. Verse nine, uh, he says, he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, probably the Southwest corner of the temple, probably no one cares, but up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. This is from Psalm 91. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus has been answering the lies of Satan with the truth of God and saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. And Satan goes, I know what I'll do. I can find a verse too. Hey, this is what the Bible says. So you ought to do this. And Jesus has none of it. Can you find people today that'll find a Bible verse, take it out of context, twist it, read into it, and then go, aha, and they've come up with some solution and you go, that doesn't line up with anything remotely in the entire rest of the Bible. No, but I found a verse to justify what I wanna say. That's what Satan is doing right here. You you won't be surprised to know that Psalm 91, if you read it, clearly has nothing to do with protecting people who jump off of buildings. That's not what he's talking about. Here's my summary of what he's actually trying to say in Psalm 91. It's, um, he's trying to communicate that God's protection is so near, thoughtful, and precise that his angels could even protect people in the smallest things, like stopping them from hurting their feet while they're walking. But Satan tries to use it to mean something else. And he says, go up to the temple and stand on top of the temple and fall off. And look, God is obligated to do something. That's what he's saying. That's why Jesus replies and says, it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the child standing on the crib and you're going get down from the crib and the child's gonna just do a face plant swan dive right into the carpet and what's gonna happen? Well, the parent is obligate, you gotta run over and you gotta help protect the kid right? It's I'm forcing your hand to do something. And one of the ways I see this play out in Christianity today is is I will just sin. I will just live my life however I want. And God, ah, there's Bible verses that talk about how forgiving God is. And if I just live recklessly apart from God and in rebellion against him, he has to forgive me. He is obligated to do it. And rather than get into all the theology of that, let me just offer this. If you do what just happened in the last two temptations, if you do kind of a cost-benefit analysis of should I sin, should I not, um, uh, where you know, it's such a big benefit for such a little compromise, um, or if you, uh, if, if you do the other thing where you go, I'm just gonna do what I want. Jesus, he has to forgive me. I think you should rethink the very nature of your relationship with God. It is not just he has done something and now I will dutifully do my best to try and do all the things that he had commanded to do. What is the bond that we have with God? It's love. I saw a movie, probably it would have been at least what, 16 and a half years ago, because I didn't have a kid yet. And I was watching a movie and the building's on fire and there's people standing outside and this couple's sitting there and they're, ah, and they're, and they're panicked. And the fireman comes over, he says, what's, what's wrong? And she says, you know, my kid is still inside the building. And then right then, boom, Spider-Man pew, pew, swoops in, goes over to the building, goes in the building. He didn't hear the conversation, so I don't really know how he knew, but whatever. It's a superhero movie, who cares? It's good enough swoops in the building, the whole thing's on fire, except the one little corridor, he walks down. He walks down it, there's fire all around him, he gets the kid, phew, goes out, gets the child, hands him to the mother, thank you, Spider-Man. And I watched that before I had kids, and I went, Yeah, superhero movie, whatever. Then I had kids, and I saw the same scene, and I thought, this is the most unrealistic piece of filmmaking ever. Once I had a kid, I understood that if my kid is in that building, I'm not standing outside and going, "I hope somebody does something about this." I'm pushing the firemen over, I'm running in. I would, without even thinking and without hesitation, run into the building, try and find my kid, get them out any way I could, and if it cost me my life, I would sacrifice that in a heartbeat for that. Why? It's not because I became a dad and I went, well, my duty is to protect and to provide and to, it's love. It's love. This is, this is why Christians over the centuries have been burned at the stake and they're saying, renounce your faith. And they say, I can't. I, my love for God is so great. When we say our love for God is so great, all of a sudden, looking for all the loopholes of just going, I could do this and rebel against Him, and it would give me a really nice benefit, and then He's going to have to be obligated. Like that—that that thinking doesn't even enter your mind with somebody that you love. We need to grow in our affections for God. I was actually—I uh, was talking to a guy here at Rockland and. He's just going through a tough time. And I said, well, what, what would when you say tough, what do you mean? And he said, I just really need to grow my love for God. And I thought, that's a good way to say it. I need to learn more. I need to study my Bible more. I need to do more Christian-y thing. He said, I need to grow in my love for God. I said, that's it. You see what Jesus did? He, he looked at the lies that Satan brought. He knew the truth and he put the truth up against it and Satan lost. That's what we do that Jesus did. But now there's something that Jesus did that we are not supposed to do. Before you cart me off as a heretic, hang on just a minute, okay? Because we all know there's things Jesus did that we're not supposed to do. Jesus claimed, uh, this is Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. We don't go, it's my church. It's Jesus's church. Jesus went and died on the cross to pay for sins. We don't go die on the cross to pay for sins, Um <clears throat> Jesus claimed his divinity. I don't claim divinity. I hope you don't either. I don't claim to be God. Okay, so there's things Jesus does. Now, one of the things that happens here, if you remember, is, um, is Jesus was led, it says, by the Spirit into the wilderness. I think this passage is one of the most important passages for us to understand as Christians. And I also think it is one of the worst taught passages in the Bible, now please don't hear that as me going everybody else is wrong you're so lucky to have me. I want to show you what the what the main meaning of this text is. So hang with me for just a second. I told you earlier that you have the baptism and then Luke kind of throws in this genealogy and then it goes to the temptation of Jesus and then he begins his ministry. Do you remember the genealogy? It starts out and it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. What he does when he starts the genealogy, he puts this thing in here and he starts the genealogy and he doesn't say he's the son of Joseph because he knows he's the son of God. And then he works through the genealogy, genealogy, genealogy to Seth, to Adam. And then what does he call Adam? The son of God. And then the temptations happen. The point of this text, this is really important, is he is comparing the son of God, Adam, with the true son of God, Jesus. And what you're gonna see is where Adam failed the test, our savior passed the test. One son of God failed, and the true son of God passed the test. Think about Adam in the lush Garden, Jesus in the God-forsaken wilderness. Think about um, Adam with basically one command that he's not supposed to break the law and he broke it. And here's Jesus already living in the fallen world, being peppered by by Satan in temptation. And then he brings three big ones right at him. He is here with his wife. This is pre the fall. They have, it says they're naked and unashamed. They have no barriers or anything between them. They have this beautiful relationship. He has companionship. Jesus is all alone. What, you, what Luke wants us to understand, and what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand is Adam, if any human being should have ever passed a test, that one was easy and he blew it. And if there was ever a time where it would have been maybe permissible for someone who's really, really great, the perfect man, to come in and fail a test, this seems like the conditions were set for it. And he's saying, Adam blew it. The Son of God blew it. The real Son of God, he passed the test. Think about how he got tempted, by the way. What did he do? About the same thing that Jesus got, right? Remember how Adam got tempted? Look at the fruit on the tree. And what did he do? He started, uh, uh, he tempted him with food that God said, don't take. Um, Hey, look, doesn't that look good to eat? Yeah, it looks good to eat. What could possibly go wrong? Well, you could infect the entire human race with sin. Thanks, Adam. That's what happened. Like, I I picture, like, if Satan was there, and he's got, like, his minions with him, and and he's like, hey, guys, I've got this idea. I'm sorry, you're not the minions choir. I apologize. Um, I'll do it over here. (laughs) Um, He's got his little minions, and he's like, I'm going to go try and get Adam and Eve, and I'm going to go get them to try and eat the fruit that they're not supposed to eat. I think they would all go, are you kidding me? Like the one thing they're not supposed to do, look at, how, look at how great they have it. Do you think they're really gonna fall for that? Like, I wonder if Satan's going, I've got like 20 things, so don't worry if they get the first one, we can get them with the next one. And he goes over and he goes, hey, doesn't that look good to eat? The thing that God told you not to do, doesn't that look good for eating? And he's like, that's okay, we're fine. I've got some more I can do. Oh, they're already eating it. Yeah, that was easy. First shot, They failed. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he walks into temptation to prove who he is, to show Satan and to show us that he is divine, that he is the only one that is worthy of being the sacrifice between us and God. Our job is not to seek out temptation like Jesus did, because we do way more like Adam when temptation hits, don't we? What are we supposed to do? Remember how Jesus taught us to pray? lead us not into temptation. When the church is instructed later about what we're supposed to do with temptation, um, it's in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 13. Can you put that up for me? I didn't write it out. Thank you. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. The NIV says he will provide you with a way out. What do we do with temptation? We need to become better at fleeing than fighting temptation. Our job when temptation rears its head is to flee. We shouldn't trust ourselves. We are human beings and we shouldn't trust ourselves in the midst of temptation. I'll give you a couple examples, very simple ones. Um, You're tempted to grab a cookie in the kitchen? I am, I like them. Um, Nikki, darn her, swapped a thing of cookies the other day with a, a, a bowl of grapes. <laughs> what happened? Well, it's gone. Because if there's cookies there, you better believe I'd eat cookies. What about social media? I, I would look at social media and I would just get so mad. And I kept going, I'm just gonna try to not get mad, try to not get mad, try to not get mad. And eventually you just, you just do. I got rid of it. I just, I was gone for a couple of years. I just got back on it. I just said, I'm gonna take this off of my phone and remove this temptation. Because if I were Satan, that's how I would get me. And so I went, I'm just gonna get rid of that. My, um, <clears throat> my email on my phone, what about work email on your phone? You just take it off, put it on a computer in the other room where you gotta make an effort to get up and go do it or something like that. Um, I can tell you, parents, if you have a probably 15 or 16-year-old boy that has a laptop or a phone and goes in his room at night, it's about a 95% chance that he looks at pornography regularly. We are putting temptation in their hands and isolating them. What about if you're with somebody and and when you have a temptation to anger? You probably know your triggers when when you really can get kind of angry. And do you ever have a temptation to either... Uh, physically or verbally respond in a way that's inappropriate. That's just my, that's my thing. I know I should be more calm. You know, an easy thing to, not easy thing, but a good thing to do, if you start getting heated, instead of going, I'm gonna stay in the midst of this and I'm just gonna try to handle it well in my emotional state. Say, can we talk about this later? Just slip out. We are supposed to flee temptation Whenever it comes, we can put up uh, barriers as well to try and keep temptation from us. I got a buddy that lives in Texas and he's an oil and gas guy. And um, if you know oil and gas people and you ask them what they do, they say, I'm an oil and gas. And then you go, tell me what you do. And then they explain it and you go, so I'm glad they just say oil and gas. I still don't know what he did. He was an oil and gas and um, he had a company and he said, our hope is, our hope is in three years, we will start to see a little bit of profit. In three months, he brought home a check for $1 million. It did very well. He had a check for a million dollars and, uh, and I knew him very, very well. He was a volunteer at our church and, and we got to know each other well. And uh, he shared it with me and I asked what he did with it. I
0: was like, what'd you do? Did
1: you buy a car? Did you, you know, I don't know, whatever. And, um, and he had a really interesting answer. He grew up, His parents didn't have much money, but his dad couldn't say no. So they, I mean, they had some money. So they would just spend money constantly. And he knew that his pull is going to be, if uh, if I get some money, I'm just gonna want more. And I'm just gonna have to buy the nicest thing. And then I'm gonna have to get more money so I can buy the even next nicer thing. And he knew that was going to be an addiction for him and pull him in that direction. Now, his wife, on the other hand, I knew, we knew the family very well. um, She told her story about growing up. They would get a cup of water and put it on the sink and they would use that to brush their teeth for a week. They didn't have hardly any money. So you can imagine in their marriage, they'd had some tension. Plus he's starting this business and he is this spender, spender, spender. And she's going, are you kidding me? Why, why is the water running? I mean, she had that background. He had this background. So he comes home with this 1 million. I said, what'd you do? He said, here's what I did with my $1 million check. I called my wife and I said, get dressed up. I'm gonna take you out to dinner tonight. Some things went well at work. And they got to the thing and she said, what's going on? And that's exciting and had you know, no idea. just assumed that things were going well. And he gave her a gift and explained what happened. And he said, um, uh, the finance guy has set up an account in your name, not my name. And I have a check for you for $1 million. He gave her all million dollars and said, I can't, I'm can't. i gonna pretend it's not there. I, we're not gonna use it to pay off a credit card, pay off debt. I don't even want to know that it's there. I want to give it to you. And that's that. And she thought he was joking. It's kind of a funny story behind it, but she thought he was joking and things like that. But you know what he was doing? He was saying, I trust you, which was really beautiful for their marriage. That's part of the story. But he was also saying, if I have this and have ready access to it, I'm just gonna want more. You'll do great with this. So he told her, put an addition on the house, go buy a car, buy clothes, buy stuff, invest it all, whatever you wanna do, go for it, it's yours. He said, this is going to tempt me and I'm taking it away so it can't and I'm giving it to you. How do, we, <clears throat> how do we do in temptation? We generally do like Adam did. There's ways we can put up barriers, but we're really, the times that we fail, we're not supposed to feel defeated. We're supposed to remember that we worship a savior who passed the test perfectly, essentially on our behalf. And so his righteousness is given to us when we trust in him. That's the message of the story of the temptations. One of the reasons why I think it's, I said I think it's taught poorly is sometimes it feels like it's just told, hey, just white knuckle your way through this thing and you've got this and just do good. And really the point of it is going, you're gonna do what Adam did. We need to trust in Jesus constantly. We need to look to him and when we have victory to say Jesus has given us victory in this, that we can walk through and have victory over this temptation in our lives lives. We will do more like Adam more often than not. Luther has a quote that I love. He says, when I look at myself, that's us in Adam, I don't see how I can be saved. When I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. That's what the temptations is talking about, the brokenness of humanity and the beauty and the perfection of our Savior. That's why the genealogy is stuck in the middle, one son of God to the other son of God. God, And then right after that, Jesus returned in the power of spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. It is go time. Jesus is going to go and he's going to begin his earthly ministry. And we'll get to watch our savior work in the coming weeks.